We're in James chapter 2 again today. Um, in James 2, 14 through 26, the word faith appears either in its noun form or verb form 12 times in 13 verses. That is one of the highest concentrations of faith terminology in the entire Bible. With the exception of Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, I believe it exceeds all others. So that makes this one of the most important texts in the Bible for understanding the nature and the characteristics of faith. Let's read through uh, verse 24, starting with verse 14, James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? The word good there um, translates a word that means profit. What profit is there in that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. I have sometimes been asked to write letters of reference or to fill out questionnaires for people who are applying to Christian colleges or seminaries or are seeking employment in a church or ministry. And on some of those questionnaires, there will be a question like this. How have you observed the candidate's faith affecting his or her everyday life? And to be honest, sometimes the answer to that question has not been immediately obvious. That's a question James would enthusiastically endorse, not just for seminary applicants, but for every church member. He believed that faith, at least the kind that's instrumental in a person's salvation, will be observable. If it's not, James would question whether the right kind of faith is in operation. See, there's more than one kind of faith, but only one will do for what we need. In our text, James alludes to three different kinds of faith that I'll call worthless faith, worrying faith, and working faith. Worthless faith, worrying faith, working faith. In James, uh, in verse 14, James introduces what I'm calling worthless faith, which he refers to as dead faith down in verse 17 and useless faith in verse 20. Recognizing this kind of faith is relatively easy. It has words, but it doesn't have works, or as the NIV translates, 
deeds. They translate that one word as deeds several times and as actions on one occasion. It's wordy, but it's not worky. The word the NIV translates as deeds is the same one Paul uses when he says that Abraham was not justified by works, that we were not chosen by works, and that we are not saved by works. So if James says a person is justified by his works, which is a literal translation of verse 24, and Paul says that a person is not justified by works, aren't the two in conflict? Martin Luther thought they were. It'll help if we understand what Paul and James had in mind when they talked about works. Paul used the term works, this is really important to grasp, as a shorthand for the more precise but also more unwieldy phrase, works of the law. He uses that phrase repeatedly in his letters, but often he just uses the word works to stand for that. So when Paul insists that a person is not saved by works, he's talking about works of the law. Things like circumcision, observing kosher regulations, keeping Sabbath, participating in new moon festivals, and much, much more. But when James uses the same word, he has something different in mind. He's not talking about works of the law, but about actions performed in obedience to Christ, particularly his command to love. Martin Luther thought they were talking about the same thing. And so he assumed that James was contradicting his beloved Paul. But Paul himself says in Galatians that neither James nor the other apostles disagreed with his message. There wasn't a contradiction. Now, the same kind of thing happens with the word faith. When James uses it, he includes a broader range of meaning than does Paul. When Paul writes about faith, he assumes his readers will think of faith that submits to Jesus as Lord. For Paul, that's what faith is. If that's not it, it's not faith. But James was writing to people who regarded faith as something less defined than that. We'll see that in a few moments. You can be sure that the kind of faith James rejects, Paul would also reject. And the kind of faith Paul expects is exactly what James is talking about here. When Paul writes about people who have wandered away from sincere faith and turned to meaningless talk, he's referring to the people who possess the kind of worthless faith that James calls dead and useless and incapable of saving anyone. See, Paul and James come at this from different directions, but they're coming at the same thing. Worthless faith is talkative. So verse 14, it talks about itself. It talks about faith. It can quote the Bible. It sounds spiritual. And, and James, I don't think James minds if people talk about faith. That's not the problem. The problem is that's all they do, talk. As A.W. Tozer once put it, millions of professed believers talk as if Christ were real and act as if he were not. Our actual position is always to be discovered by the way we act, not by the way we talk. Worthless faith is often wordy faith, which, by the way, is something that Paul rebukes over and over again. People with wordy faith, they may be theologically sophisticated, 
biblically sound, appropriately orthodox, and yet their faith is worthless, verse 14, because it cannot save. In Greek, questions are often phrased. We can't do this as easily in English, but you can do it with one word in Greek. One of two words, actually. They can be phrased in such a way as to expect a yes answer or to expect a no answer. The question at the end of verse 14 is phrased to expect a no answer. It could be translated this way. Such faith cannot save him, can it? And the answer is, of course not. What makes this kind of faith worthless? It has no works, only talk. Now, admittedly, it's spiritual talk, but that won't cut it. In verse 16, James gives us an example of what he has in mind. A, a church person sees a Christ follower who doesn't have warm clothes, and he'll probably go at least without one meal today. So somebody who's shivering from the cold in Jerusalem, Jerusalem's a high elevation, the winter gets pretty cold there, doesn't have enough cold, uh, clothes, probably hasn't had all his meals today, and he says to that person, go in peace, be warm and well-fed but doesn't do anything to help. Now, that sounds spiritual. In fact, this is a blessing. It's given as a blessing. Go in peace. Be well-fed. Be warm. James asks, but if there are no works, what good is it? And his answer is, it's good for nothing. It's as good as dead. So in verse 17, he writes, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, or literally works, is dead. The NASB is more literal. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. See, faith without works dies of loneliness. Faith won't survive without works. Works won't succeed without faith. They are symbiotic. They share life with each other. That's the point of verse 18. Verse 18, James is not setting faith on one side and works on another. For James, it's not as if it were faith or works, or even faith and works. Rather, it is faith that works. James will not let us think of faith and works as if they're divisible. He is not saying works must be added to faith because real faith comes with works already installed. It's the nature of faith. Imagine you book a vacation at a resort in the Caribbean. And when you get all done, you press the button on your computer, you, you realize that you just spent more than you were prepared to spend. And you're worried about how you're going to manage it. And so you decide you can make it if you skip breakfast each morning and eat peanut butter and jelly each day for lunch, and you pack crackers in your carry-on along with bottled water. And at dinner, you figure, I'll buy the cheapest thing on the menu. And you do that every night. But at the end of the week, when it comes time to settle up your bill, you learn that all your meals were included in the price of your room, along with desserts and snacks and drinks. They're part of the package. So with faith and works. You don't add works to faith. 
they're part of the package when faith is the real thing. The kind that Paul's always talking about and that James is urging on us. Real faith takes up residence in your entire self, in your intellect, in your will, even in your body, eventually. Imitation faith never gets past here. Real faith expresses itself in loving deeds. Imitation faith expresses itself in religious-sounding words. Living faith loves. Dead faith talks. And you could say there's a second kind of faith in this passage, and, and that's what we find in verse 19. You believe that there is one God? Good. That, that by the way, is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You believe that? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. This faith could be called worrying faith. And it's the kind demons possess. Yes, demons possess a kind of faith. They aren't atheists. As far as it goes, their faith is doctrinally correct. It exceeds the wordless faith that we just read about in the previous verses, which never goes beyond words. This kind of faith at least reaches into the emotions. The demons believe and tremble. Isn't that something? Demons display a more significant response to the truth of God than does the person whose faith is all up here, merely intellectual. The demons mentioned in the New Testament, you think about it, they know that Jesus is the Son of God. They are absolutely convinced of his authority and power. They believe in a place of punishment. They believe Jesus is judge. They even pray to him. A lot of true belief there. But that kind of faith only qualifies one to be a demon, not a Christian. You see what this means? It means people can be well-informed in their minds, even deeply stirred in their emotions, and yet possess a faith that is entirely insufficient for their needs. If a person's faith won't move them to obey Christ, it's probably not the kind of faith that will move Jesus to save. James sums this part up in verse 20 with the words, faith without deeds is useless. Useless there translates a Greek word that means inoperative. So I don't see Mark Otis here in here. He must be doing EPT duty, but he told me this a couple weeks ago that um, he bought a small made-in-China outboard motor from Amazon to serve as a spare in, it, in case his primary motor should fail when he's fishing on one of the swift rivers that he likes to fish for walleye. So imagine that Mark is a mile down river when a storm comes up and he decides, I'm going to head for home, but his motor doesn't start. And he can't paddle a mile against that current strong. So, but never fear, he, he bought that spare motor. So he sets it up, he pulls the starter rope, and nothing happens. The motor is useless, inoperative. That's the word James uses to describe faith that has knowledge and even stirs the emotions but doesn't work. It's useless. 
One of James' great concerns is that his people will deceive themselves. He's already warned them against it three times. Don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't be deluded. How can we avoid that? How can we know whether our faith is real or is an imitation? I mean, you can't tell just because you have feelings, right? The demons have feelings. If you want to see if a diamond is real, there are a number of tests that you can try. You know, I was always told you can, can cut glass with a diamond, and I, I tried that once and it didn't work. I, you know, maybe it wasn't real. But here are some other tests you can try. You can fog a diamond with your breath, and if it's real, the fog will clear in just a second or so. But if it's fake, the fog will last longer. I'm, I'm waiting to see somebody go. <laughs> <laughs> with faith, there's something similar. If a person's life gets fogged with some sin, which happens to believers and unbelievers. He or she will quickly clear it up, but it'll stick around if faith isn't genuine. If you heat a diamond with a butane lighter and then drop it in a glass of ice water, it'll shatter if it's fake. But you do the same with a real diamond and it'll hold together. And likewise, fiery trials can shatter imitation faith, but real faith survives them. It may need to be polished up again, but it remains intact. A real diamond refracts light in a way a fake diamond does not. So you can take a real diamond and set it on a book or on newsprint, and you will not be able to read the print through it because of the way the light refracts and reflects. But you will see the letters through a fake diamond. In a similar way, real faith refracts and reflects in such a way that you don't see the person behind it clearly. Instead, you catch a reflection of Jesus. Imitation faith not only lets you see the person, it magnifies the person. It has a kind of look-at-me attitude. Real faith doesn't do that. Let me give you a couple more tests. Ask yourself, have I ever done anything that I would not have done? Or ever refrained from doing anything that I would have done because I believe in Jesus? If faith in Jesus has never led you to do something, that is not a good sign. Imitation faith is content to talk. Real faith has to act. So, If you regularly say to people, hey, I'll pray for you, but never actually pray for them, that may be a sign that your faith is not the saving kind. No, it could be a sign of something else, too. So if you think, oh, I've done that. My faith must not be saving faith. It could be something else. It could be a sign. So faith can be real and weak or real and small. Jesus routinely rebuked his disciples as little faiths. It could be that your faith hasn't grown because you filled your life with too many things or too many distractions, Um, maybe because of fear or of pride. You've not taken on the easy yoke of Christ, but you've taken on the back-breaking, spirit-numbing burden of impressing other people. That could be the reason, too. 
And, and then let me give you one last test. Genuine working faith is always faith in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, imitation faith always finds substitutes. Now, sometimes those substitutes are true things and, and even true doctrines. But ours is not faith in a doctrine. It's not faith in substitutionary atonement, for example, but faith in the substitute, Jesus Christ. We believe the doctrine, but we believe in the Lord Jesus. We're not trusting a doctrine to save us. We're trusting the Savior to save us. Likewise, genuine working faith is not faith in faith. I know a woman who was always saying to people, I trust my faith. And I wanted to say, in fact, if I remember correctly, I did say it once. Well, stop trusting your faith and start trusting Jesus. Faith can never be the object of faith any more than light can shine on light. We only know the light because it shines on something else. Were light to shine into an endless vacuum, it would never be seen. Light needs an object. So does faith. And the object of faith that can save is God in Jesus Christ. Now, if you, after reading James 2 and listening to this sermon, are sitting there questioning whether you have genuine faith or not, great! That's wonderful. St. Paul tells us to do just that. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. But you need to know this. A person can have genuine faith in Jesus and yet lack assurance of it. Unforgiveness toward someone is probably the chief cause of that. So you can read about that in 1 John chapter 5. Unforgiveness is probably the chief cause of that, but other things. Um, having untrustworthy parents, growing up with unloving parents, uh, experiencing the unfaithfulness of someone else, uh, the kind of overloaded life I mentioned just a moment ago, and more can make faith really difficult. But even when you are confused about yourself, God is not. God's solid foundation stands firm, St. Paul writes, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. If you're not sure about yourself, ask God to show you where you stand. He'll do it. But better yet, ask God to show you Jesus the cross on which he died, the grave over which he triumphs, and the throne from which he reigns. Seeing him is what causes faith to ignite, to come to life. All right, let's pray. And so, oh God, show us your son, Jesus. Let him fill our vision. And then, Lord, we won't worry about whether we have faith. We'll have it. And, Lord, we'll have it not because we work something up or because we're good people, but because you are who you are. 
and you've given us your son. And he makes all the difference. Lord, I pray for anyone who's sitting out there whose faith is not genuine. Would you show them this clearly? And I'm just as concerned about the person whose faith is genuine, but is suffering doubts about it. Lord, you, you bring them to the place where they forget all about that and just know you. We ask you to do these things, Lord, not because we're deserving, but because Jesus died for us. Amen.